Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning or good afternoon, Mo. Uh, I know Hi. you're at Mac and you just you just did a PhD thesis defense and, and you're looking very professorial in front of that calculus you just did on the blackboard behind you. But <laughs> that was the first question. I just said solve, solve. <laughs> solve <Yeah>. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I just especially want you to note uh, what I'm wearing based on our past Ortho Joe uh, presentation. You know, I'm trying to learn even at my age, I'm, I'm trying to pick things up. So here you go. There's no tie. There's yes, a, uh, yes. This is actually a frisbee golf shirt. So oh. I'm trying. I'm trying to be cool <laughs> like you. So Mark, Mark, I will say one thing. The next evolution, top button, unbutton it. Go crazy. Just go okay. crazy. Just go crazy. I can take immediate feedback. Oh, now <laughs> it's it. That's it. You fully. You have. Full, that's it. There's. There's nothing else that can be taught to you at this point. You've. You've done it. You've done it. That's awesome. And look at Good. me. I'm in a jacket now. I'm in a jacket. I'm, I'm evolving to the uh, JBJS tie is coming next, next week. You watch. <laughs> this is what, you, this is what I think is called regression to the mean. Right? In statistics. <laughs> I'm yeah. learning. I'm learning. Yeah. Good. Why don't you introduce our special guest? Sure. Mm. So I have the pleasure, Mark, of introducing uh, Dr. Femi Ayeni. He is the current head of the Division of Orthopedics at McMaster University, serves as a professor. He's a recent uh, designate of a uh, title called a university scholar at McMaster University, which is high honor for academic achievement held by a handful of people in our in our program. He also is a Canada Research Chair, so I can go on and on. But I think today's discussion with Femi, and I'm hoping he'll be able to share some expertise with us, is about what's happening in the world of FAI. And uh, those three lovely letters that I think are just framed on your wall, Femi. You know, um, <laughs> I'm curious about, maybe I'll let you have kind of have this stage here to kind of give us a bit of a, a highlight. You know, if, if you were to talk to an audience about FAI that may not all be focused on the area, what would you tell them? Oh, thanks for having me on, on Ortho Joe. I'm pleased to be amongst great company and people who've mentored me yourself. Uh, I've always tried to really, you know, um, take my career along your paths. And so having you as a mentor has been wonderful. And, and Dr. Uh, uh, Splunkowski as well, always admired you from a distance. So thanks for having me. But, you know, I when people ask about FAI and hip preservation, I think the uh, answer usually is, well, in the 1950s, the hip replacement came into vogue and everything that had to do with hip preservation fell by the wayside. So it was all about materials, cementation, bone integration, even fixing fractures with a hip replacement. And it was such a wonderful operation and still is, that took over everything. As a result, the focus of research really went for about five decades away from preservation. And now it's come back starting in the early 2000s. And that's why you have this explosive growth of hip arthroscopy and hip preservation, FAI work. And I've been a part of that journey as well. And, you know, if you're looking at what's coming down the pipeline, so that's just a brief summary of what has happened and what is coming down the pipeline is really getting better and more predictable with what we do. So I think that in the world of research pertaining to hip preservation, FAI surgery, it's all about, can we technically and efficiently do the operation in a reproducible way so that everybody can do it right? And that's where having technology, whether computer assisted, robotics are coming into play, and then using big data to help with patient selection. So really trying to figure out when does this really work? So we know what to do technically, but it doesn't work in everybody. And so really looking at 
factors or predictors of outcomes is where this is all going. Femi, can I ask you to take a step back? You know, you gave us a really, I mean, a, an eloquent storyline of, you know, where it happened, but who are the pioneers of FIA? I mean, I know you and a number of your colleagues uh, represent sort of this this new wave of, of a scholarly activity that's focusing on really trying to sort out modern day issues. But who who are the pioneers of FAI work? Yeah, surprisingly, you know, um, in the 1930s, Smith-Peterson from the Smith-Peterson approach did describe, you know, his case series of, you know, uh, impingement. And then it was picked up by Reinhold Gans, who is a legend in the field of uh, hip impingement, who really put together the theory elegantly of how impingement and the mechanical conflict can lead to some degenerative change in certain uh, individuals. So Reinhold Gans then led the way. And then Mark Philippon came with the arthroscopic dimension of really trying to transition from open uh, surgical treatment to arthroscopic, you know, impingement treatment. And he's well-renowned, clearly. And then, you know, the so-called uh, young individuals uh, don't feel so young are trying to help with the academic and research development side of things. But, you know, Reinhold Gans certainly came up with the mechanical theory after, you know, decades of, um, you know, initial thoughts about this from Smith-Peterson. Yeah, thanks uh, for that uh, review, Femi. Just one name that I would add is Tom Bird in Nashville was, you know, in the 90s uh, talking about this and was really shunned in, in the sports world. Uh, and he's, he's, he's just been consistent over the decades and, and, and very, very thoughtful uh, individual. But actually, I took a look at uh, jbjess.org and just used the search engine. And sure enough, you're right. There, there's actually a manuscript we published in 1937 on arthroscopy of joints. That, that has the first indication that maybe the hip could be done. Uh, and then I looked carefully as, as what happened through the, uh, through the decades really. And as you mentioned already, it really wasn't until about 2002, 2004, when we saw the explosion, particularly on the arthroscopy side. And right now we're seeing, oh, I don't know, 10 to 25 submissions a year uh, from uh, the centers that do a lot of this uh, work. So it, it's been a, sl a slow evolution, and I really like your theory that what damaged the field was the 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 fact that the hip hip replacement was such a good operation that people stopped looking at the the basic uh, problem there. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting story in in, in orthopedics. That, that's for sure. No, fantastic, and I, and I, and uh, Tom Border is a legend in the field and a past president of ISHA as well. And I'll lose friends because there's so many great um, arthroscopic <laughs> surgeons all over the world who are doing this, but. You're right. I mean, at some point, um, looking at data just on surgical volume, it was doubling every two to three years in the United States and Canada's following that same trajectory as well. So, you know, with the, um, you know, papers that we, you know, typically review or, or you know, um, assess and see at meetings, the, the hip is carving out an increasingly larger space at all of the sports medicine meetings, because prior to that, you'd have one instructional course lecture, maybe one or two papers in an abstract, but now, you know, from uh, machine learning to, you know, big data to, you know, randomized trials to biologics in that space, they're all just starting to come into their, um, you know, their time, so to speak. And so I'll, I think you'll only have more work to do at the journal. Well, wh while I've got the uh, podium and, and my uh, friend, Professor Bandari, professor of mathematics at, at, uh, <laughs> at Mac, uh, is allowing me to ask you the next question as well. So we've talked on Ortho Joe on, a, on several occasions about the influence of, of patient personality, uh, pain perception, et cetera. Can you just give us uh, in our listening audience your thoughts on where that 
line of research is, is figuring in uh, into this work in, in, in hip preservation? I think that certainly is now um, the next generation. You know, having been in a few study groups globally looking at that, it really is now becoming uh, one of the factors that we've underassessed. And sometimes it, it ends up being in the world of qualitative research and looking at um, factors like kinesiophobia and fear of return to sport. And we're starting to really uh, destigmatize that component of research because clearly with FAI, it was in always, or usually, I would say usually in a young active individual who likes to play sports and to really you know, talk about some of those uh, dimensions of medicine, mental health and you know, pain perception and kinesiophobia, it wasn't really in vogue and wasn't really accepted um, because it wasn't really, you know, uh, it became, are you tough enough, so to speak? And that was often unfair to the athlete. But now that society is changing, evolving, the understanding of the contributions of pain perception, doing pain maps prior to surgery, and really trying to detail, you know, that analysis to match your outcomes in the future is coming certainly to the fray. So we don't have all the answers yet, but personally, anecdotally, which is not evidence-based, I would say that there is a large component uh, of this that impacts our outcomes. I think it's like the iceberg picture where you just see the tip of it in the 10 minute clinic visit. And then, you know, the rest of it is submerged underwater, but it's a huge contributor to what we're all trying to achieve, which is, you know, a good outcome for patients. You know, Femi, like you talk um, a lot about sort of the increase, you know, the increase in need for sports medicine. Now it's probably a mandatory or one of the mandatory, you know, subspecialty areas that you, you're thinking about having a, a broad uh, experience in sports medicine, you can take it on. Hip preservation fellowships are becoming more of the norm than they were before. And that must mean you're getting lots and lots and lots of referrals. So realizing this is probably, I'm asking you to condense this down for our listeners and our viewers, but what? evidence-based approaches are you using to determine whether the, you know, rule out hip pain as a, you know, or FAI as a cause of hip pain to get you to someone who you think you can help? Like, what are the key things that you think are critical in 2022 for practitioners to be aware of and doing and as it factors into your decision-making? So, I mean, the fundamentals usually are your history and physical examination. So, the challenges that we would sometimes face is getting a, a radiographic diagnosis that doesn't really match the clinical symptomatology, right? So MRI may say labral tear or impingement, and the patient has, for example, sciatica, which doesn't really match up. But, you know, for the most part, I would say that, you know, a history of hip pain, specifically groin dominant discomfort is very important. That is worsened with activity. So activity dependent discomfort and worsen with rotational movement. So somebody says, when I run, when I rotate my hip, it hurts. So that's important and not just for a week or two, but for several months. And then we move to the physical examination. The maneuvers aren't always so sensitive or specific, but the best of what we have is the flexion, adduction, internal rotation test or the theater test to try and provoke or induce pain that is similar to what they experience day to day. And there's some other tests, but that's probably the best test we have. And then you move on to your imaging, looking at x-rays first, to look at other conditions, osteoarthritis. In fact, I've picked up some osteodosteomas of the hip because of an x-ray that was triggering the hip pain. So x-rays are important to look at the morphology of the hip and then an MRI to assess the soft tissue contributors. CT scans can be very helpful. I use it, you know, episodically, I would say, depending on how complex the x-rays look. But I think that if you have the history, the physical, the imaging that you choose, and then finally a diagnostic and particular injection to rule out the pain source. So if your pain subsides as an intraarticular injection, We've shown in our data that, you know, it certainly is diagnostic and therapeutic for that reason, but predictive values are important if you get no relief. 
So if you have no relief from that injection, chances of you having success with surgery are sub 60%. So those are sort of the you know, tenets of how we you know, assess patients. It's the history of physical imaging, diagnostic injection. And if you line up, meaning you have groin dominant pain with rotation, an exam that's positive, and the x-ray MRI showing an impingement morphology with labral pathology, then injection positive, off you go to meet a surgeon who can potentially help you. Of course, the other dimensions of research, looking at pain and perception of pain will influence that too in the future. But for now, those are some basic fundamental steps to build off of and then make a better decision as you move into more practice-based experience. That was really a comprehensive review, Femi. Thanks for that. But can you just uh, tell our uh, audience uh, what what are the sport? What's known about the sports that put adolescent athletes whose hips are developing at risk for this? What's what's known about the the sports in that area? Oh, no, thanks for asking that as well. We're working on it um, locally, and essentially, we think that you know sports that involve you know the critical age of hip development is age twelve to fourteen. That's when the physis, the growth plate, is very very active. So currently, we have two hundred adolescents who are age twelve. We're tracking their activities by wearing like a Fitbit-like device, so 24-7 um, surveillance of their activity profile, and then MRIing serially year after year to see their hip development, to see if the morphology of the femoral head and neck junction or acetabulum changes. So we are, um, after publishing a pilot, recognizing that sports specialists tend to have, you know, morphology of FAI, even though they're asymptomatic at that time frame, and who becomes symptomatic is the next big question, but sports that are involving a lot of specialty-based training, meaning you're not training in multiple sports, but doing the same thing all the time, I think can be a problem. And I think that those particularly involving rotation and flexion of your hip can be a problem. So that's what we're seeing in the pilot data, but hopefully a year or two from now, we'll have 200 young athletes, adolescent athletes, and we can quantify what volume of activity uh, relates to developing symptomatic FAI. Ironically though, those who are very active in sports have the wellness scores and quality of life scores that are quite high. So sports do benefit the social relationships and just development as a person, but maybe too much of it can be a problem. So we have to figure out how to be sort of somewhere in the middle where we're doing enough to be active, but not enough to cause pre-arthritic morphology that can cause problems downstream. I mean, suppose you're in a dream state and you're, you know, you, you're not off. And suddenly in this dream state, you awaken to the NIH and the Canadian Institute of Health Research saying, Femi, we will give you as much money as you need. What study do you want to conduct? What is that, Femi? <laughs> wow, that's a great question. I, I, I think like, you know, looking at a um, large population-based type, you know, almost like the work you've done with trauma, you know, taking a, a population and assessing them serially for a decade, and really getting some large, big prospective data on you know, baseline status of hip development or, or, or uh, hip condition, and then looking longitudinally at what happens, who gets into trouble and why, and cataloging that in a big population-based study, a natural history study of FAI and who gets osteoarthritis and who does not. And that will really answer a lot of that um, you know, debate about what about asymptomatic FAI, because some people will advocate and say, well, it's preventative to try and correct that before it becomes symptomatic. So really understanding with a large, broad study like that, community or population-based rather, would be very helpful in understanding which of the patients who do have um, FAI morphology gets into symptomatic early degenerative change. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much. So 
Femi, has hip arthroscopy gotten to the point now where every orthopedic surgeon graduating from you know, a, a good training program should be able to incorporate this into their practice? Excellent question. I, um, you know, I think we have the misnomer that hip arthroscopy has a steep learning curve, and that means that in a short amount of time, you get skill level that develops vertically. But the reality is it's actually a very prolonged or flat learning curve. And so, you know, it does take hundreds of cases to become proficient. Now, I think every resident should be exposed, understand how to assess and diagnose a patient. But at this point, I would advise that, you know, subspecialty training is um, required for somebody to be proficient and successful in their practice. Now, I do think that um, in the future, with a lot of the technologies we're seeing in virtual reality and other training uh, paradigm shifts, which can expose you to develop those tactile skills, things will change. Um, but for now, I think that um, any resident coming out of a residency should be able to understand what's going on, should be able to at least do a diagnostic arthroscopy and understand their the joint and then layer on the additional skills of the fellowship is what I would recommend for now. You know, Femi, like on the issue, to, just to follow up with Mark's point, I mean, is there any volume outcomes work being done right now with, like, you know, like you said, it requires hundreds of cases, but is there data that, uh, and maybe this gets back to your dream study of large observational cohort where, you know, you kind of see what happens with, with individuals and in their lives and what kind of factors predict outcomes, but is there a risk of someone like a practicing hip arthroscopist, how many, like what makes somebody proficient? Like, you're just, so there's the concept of you've done a certain amount of lifetime cases, but how many annually do you need to be doing to stay proficient, I guess? That has been understudied, Mo, and uh, you know, great point. I think that, you know, the interesting thing is each procedure within hip arthroscopy has a learning curve. So learning curve for FAI is different from learning curve from a labral reconstruction, which is different from a learning curve. So each step and each as we evolve, because now what we're seeing is an explosion of surgery outside the hip joint, you know, abductor repairs and sciatic nerve decompressions, et cetera, et cetera. So it hasn't been looked at in great detail. There are some, there is data showing that, you know, there's an association between increased volume or uh, surgical experience and improved outcomes. But even the outcomes we look at tend to be surrogates, uh, surgical time, um, you know, potentially complications, which are multifactorial. Um, and some outcomes as well. So we really haven't, we need a deeper dive into that. So that's another gap you've identified. That's great. Thanks so much. Can I just uh, ask uh, you to expand a bit, uh, Femi, on expanding on who should be doing what, you know, so we have people that can do periacetabular osteotomies. We have people that can do labral pairs. We have uh, surgeons that can do just straightforward hip arthroscopy and, and, and manage the impingement type of thing. Should, should every surgeon managing these patients be able to do everything in that spectrum of patient need? Excellent question. It's a debate. You know, um, the European training paradigm is, tends to be being a hip surgeon, meaning you start from cradle to grave hip. You start with the, you know, impingement and uh, the labor repairs to the, you know, um, total hip arthroplasty and revision arthroplasty. And then in North America, it's a different paradigm, which is Generally, the sports surgeons will treat arthroscopic uh, conditions around multiple joints. Um, I don't think we figured out that component yet as to whether or not everybody in the hip should do everything. Um, but I would certainly think that it probably ends up, will end up being focused on what you're doing specifically. So I think if you're focused more on arthroscopy, there's a higher chance and likelihood that you get more proficient by doing more arthroscopies. And if you're doing open surgery, such as a periastabular osteotomy, which is complex, then you probably get better by increasing your volumes of open surgery and staying within that lane, so to speak. 
Now, there are some people who are, and these are, there are always exceptions to every rule. That's the first thing it seems. So there are people who are hybrids that are very skilled arthroscopically and also skilled with open surgery. But generally speaking, those are two unique skill sets that require a bit of a divergence over time where people tend to choose one over the other. So I don't think at this point you should be able to do everything in the hip. It'd be great to partner with somebody so you have full coverage and you have a team. And that concept of hip preservation, not just surgical, but also non-operative is very helpful. So you have somebody who's an imaging expert who can really pick up what's going on. You have the open colleague who is a fantastic person at getting you know, the osteotomies completed successfully and the arthroscopic uh, individual who's really skilled at getting a minimally invasive approach to solving these problems. Plus the, you know, uh, focused physical therapist, maybe even a pain consultant who can help with, you know, complex pain hips, hip pain syndromes. So really it's a team-based approach. And I don't think at this stage you should aim to do every single procedure in the hip. Well, I want to just uh, thank you for your, your wisdom on this topic and your comprehensive uh, review. Uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure uh, interviewing you, Femi. Mo, do you have any last questions for our expert? You know, I mean, I, I think he said it all, and he said it all very eloquently that I'm actually speechless. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I have nothing else to add, but it was, I really appreciate you taking some time, Femi, and uh, look forward again to the opportunity to uh, interact with you. We'll, we'll welcome you back. Uh, anytime you think you've got some new insights, which I, usually is a daily event for you, uh, come back and share them with us. My pleasure. You know, I woke up this morning and had coffee from my, oh. um, <laughs> and then I, I was inspired, you know, to really come and really so-called... Uh, you know, perform today. So I'm really appreciative of uh, being loaded with caffeine. He knows uh, he's a marketing genius. He's a brand manager. He's our he's our Mac. He's our McMaster brand manager. Loved it. I always and, and I even saw that little twinkle in your eye as you brought the cup up too. It's like Bing. perfect. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak oh. with you both. It's been my pleasure. All right, that was wonderful. Bye -bye. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. Bye.